Well, good morning. morning. We're going to turn back to Matthew chapter 21. We had gotten up to the parables that concluded the chapter several weeks ago. And in my original, like, first glance at them, I'd come up with kind of what my thoughts are about them. But then I started thinking even more... Unfortunately, that means that it's probably going to take longer to get to them than I thought. So, should have just left it alone. But I started seeing some things in here that were very deep. Um, and I think actually helps give clarification in, in both ways to this scripture and, other, and the other scriptures we're going to look at um, from the book of Romans today. So if we can open up back to Matthew chapter 21, if you remember where we left off, uh, Jesus had gone back into the temple a second time. He had addressed the leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin leaders, chief priests and elders of the Jewish people and religion. Um, he had been discussing with them about various things. He had kicked everyone out of the temple who weren't supposed to be there. And they ask him the question, where does he get the authority to do this? The authority to remove people from the temple, which technically would have fallen to the chief priests and those who were the rulers, quote unquote, of the temple. But also the authority to teach in this manner. Who gave you this authority? You know, that question was hurled at Jesus very early on in the Gospel of John, where he's teaching in front of a synagogue. And the question that the hard-hearted leaders at that time asked him was, well, who, who gives you authority to do this? You know, and we discussed about the origins of earthly authority versus spiritual, godly authority, heavenly authority. We discussed where Christ came from, why Christ was an authority in this matter. Um, and why the chief priests have directed their authority strictly from a human origin, okay? And so he asked them the question about John the Baptist, and obviously they can't give a good answer because, well, they're hard-hearted. They're trying to get their way out of it. They don't want to answer the question. They're trying to look for the way to preserve their power without coming up in contact or in opposition to the people or to Jesus and to God. It's a hard line to thread. That's a hard thing to walk in. I think there's a lot of people (laughs) that try to walk that line every single day. Walk the line between, I don't really want to go against what the world is telling me to do. I want to kind of appease them, want to kind of stay with them. But I also don't want to lose my power and my status by submitting myself humbly to God. Because if I do that, then I'll lose my prestige. I'll lose what I have accrued for myself. I'll lose my position. On the other side, they'll say, I don't want to give in. I don't want to give up the world (laughs) either. I like that too. I like the world and what it has to offer and everything they tell me and all that they give me. I like both sides. How can I thread the line between self-preservation and worldly enjoyment and not fully submitting to God? How can I thread that line? I think that's a, that's a middle ground that a lot of Christians sit in every day. How can I thread the line between complete and utter childlike submission to God and the other? So here he goes forward and he says, you got to tell me which 
authority you get yours from where did john get his authority well they had that argument out then jesus after he finishes that he goes right into three parables that take up the end of 21 and the beginning of 22 okay and these three parables are not just fun little children's nursery rhymes okay they're not as some people will think of parables as nice little teaching tools these parables are like, you know how you kind of read some Mother's Goose things and you're going, that's not really a children's thing, okay? Like London Bridge, who's singing that, dancing around in a circle going, oh, and everybody's dying of smallpox. What a fun thing. Or let's talk about, you know, uh, let's talk about the old man that lived upstairs that was in his bed and then somebody threw him out of his bed down the stairs and he died. Merry Christmas, happy Mother's Goose Day. I don't know. I mean, the stories that some of these nursery rhymes come up with, you're like, you know, we sing them. But really, that's creepy. All right. That's a little weird. Goosey, goosey gander. That's the one I'm talking about, Brother Charles. Never heard that one. Goosey, goosey gander. Where does thou art wonder? Upstairs, downstairs, in thy master's chambers. Upstairs, I found a man who wouldn't say his prayers. So I grabbed him by the left leg and I threw him down the stairs. So, I mean, that's a very loving... That's my favorite one, by the way. That was always my favorite one as a child. I'm not going to blame the Ducey Gander for legalism, but I mean, that was pretty good. All right. So here, though, he continues on. I know that was a big divergent. Okay. These stories, what I was getting at, these stories are not fanciful little nursery rhymes. These are actually deep, deep judgments against Israel. Deep judgments. Like... Going on for a long time kind of judgments against Israel. And this is a rubber meets the road, hammer meets the anvil, stuff's about to happen, judgment time, okay? So here in Matthew chapter 21, he starts off immediately after he has talked to these leaders. And he says, starting in verse 27, and they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell where this authority comes from. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But, tell me what you think about this. A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go today in my vineyard and work. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir, and went not. Whether of these two did the will of his father? And they say unto him, The first. And Jesus says unto them, Verily I say to you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterwards, that you might believe in him. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around about and digged a wine press in and had built a tower and let it out or rented it out to husbandmen or workers who were going to take care of it for him. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits thereof. They're coming to collect the produce that had been grown. And the husbandmen, the servants, took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, which Mark Gospel records it as his well-beloved son, saying, They will reverence my son. 
But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said to themselves, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they called him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord thereof or therefore of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those husbandmen? I think every one of us has our answer. And these Jewish leaders did too. They said to him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will rent out his vineyard to other husbandmen or servants, which will render him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you not ever read the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him To powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard this parable, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the marriage or to the wedding, and they would not come. And again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden are not worthy. Go you therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests." And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I wanted to read all those in their entirety so we can kind of get a picture of what we're looking at. When you start back at the first one, you see the parable of the two sons, which we talked briefly about last time. You have two sons, one which was told to go do the father's will. And originally, the son rebelled and said, nope, I will not do that. But... Later, he repented and he went ahead and did it. Okay. The second son was called and said, hey, go do what I'm telling you to do. And that son said, oh, sure, I'll do it, daddy. Of course, I'll do it. And then he went off and he played Xbox. Okay. Now, what the question is, which of these two did the father's will? Well, this is not a hard question, is it? We know which one did the one that actually did. Okay. The first son. Now, sometimes what we expect or want is immediate obedience. I'm telling you to do this, and we expect of our children to go do it, don't we? I mean, have any of y'all had the expectation that your child would not do what you told them to do? Did you say, I'm going to tell them this, I don't really mean it until I get to the fifth time. (laughs) Then I really mean it, okay? 
In parenting books, you know, that's why they'll tell you not to count to three because really your first word should be your word. You shouldn't have to count, all right? Now, again, I always look at those books and say, well, good luck, luck with that. I don't know what kid you've got. Um, and somehow one, two, three inspires a fear of God that just telling them the first time didn't. So it's a handy tool. We use it. But we expect immediate obedience. That's what we desire. That's what we want, not always what we get. Okay. But let me ask you this. Are you not satisfied if on the second or the third time your child actually goes and does what he did? I mean, it's not like you walk away from that and go, nope, forget it. You had your first chance. You didn't do it. I wanted your room clean. Yeah, I know you went ahead and cleaned it. But since you didn't do it on the first time, it's death and torment and punishment. No, I mean, you know, we have a little discussion about maybe a little quicker obedience. But in general, you got done what you wanted done. Your will was accomplished. Okay. Now. The one that doesn't get mercy is the one who says they're going to do it, lies about it, and ultimately doesn't do it. That's the one that gets grounded. That's the one that gets grounded not only for not doing what I told you to do, but for lying to me about it, right? How many of you have said that? If you had just told me the truth, I probably would have gone easy on you. But the fact that you lied to me was a double sin. These two are immediately cleared up. You don't have an ambiguity about who they're talking about. Jesus comes out and says, who is sitting in whom's seat? Okay? And what's amazing to me, and what I love about it, is that Jesus does not pick out the socially acceptable people to sit in that seat. He doesn't go out and say the clean-cut, white-collared, middle-class, good-looking, nice-talking people are the ones that are going into the kingdom ahead of you. He says the tax collectors, which you hate, and the prostitutes are ahead of you. Tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, today we would say tax collectors, and although there is some animosity towards the IRS, don't have the same feeling, okay? Their day, tax collectors were worse than prostitutes, okay? In, in, in some ways, they were equal in the sense that both of them were selling themselves out for gain, okay? The tax collectors sold themselves out, sold out their people so that they could collect taxes for a foreign government on their people, and they did a lot of skimming off the top, okay? That's how wicked these people were. And in a national, ethnocentric group of people like the Jews, selling your people out so that you can make money, and then you're going to steal the money from your people? I mean, that's, a, that's like a double whammy on them, okay? So there's, there's an evilness to the tax collectors that the Jews just hated. And secondly, there was the prostitutes, which the Jews never, ever, ever let around them because it would have defiled their righteousness. Over and over again, you'll see stories, and we have seen stories, where Jesus sits down to eat and a prostitute comes up and washes his feet. And the self-righteous Pharisee sitting at the table with him says, Oh, if you had only known who this woman was, you would not let them touch you. Because then you would be defiled. And Jesus is like, dude, I've been walking around healing these people left and right. I've been touching these people all day, all week, all year. Hadn't bothered me a bit. And here he lays it to them in clean, plain terms.
terms, it is these people who you would regard as less, less, less than worthy of the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you, they're going in and you are not. Now, that's a slap in the face and between the eyes at the same time. These people who have built their entire existence around their self-righteousness, around their lineage, around what they feel is owed to them by God, irrespective of whether they're really following God's will or not. This is a big slap in the face. You telling me that just because I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham, I'm not getting into this kingdom? You're telling me just because that even though I have kept this law in my own interpretation perfectly, that I'm not getting in? I haven't committed those sins before. I haven't done that before. I haven't done this before. I am a righteous person. You're telling me that I'm not getting in? Of all people who should get in, I should get in. That's a familiar phrase, isn't it? Of all the people who deserve this kind of stuff, I deserve this. Or the contrary is very popular, even amongst us. Look at all I have done. Why do I deserve this? And not in a good way. Look at all that I have done. Why is this happening to me? Look at how I always go to church. Why are these bad things happening to me? Look at how I am the one that's always done. I've always done. I've always followed. I'm always here. I've always been this way. Why are bad things happening to me? If I follow God all the time, then I'm just supposed to have good all the time and no problems all the time and and everything should go right for me. And it's not. Both of those, as we talked about a few weeks ago, both of those are forms of self-righteousness. They're both forms of self-righteousness. So the second group here, these Jews that he's talking about, I mean, he's laid it out for them. He's expressed to them very clearly about where their heart is and where their position is. Okay? And if you look like over in which we've been looking at it as we've been going through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You remember how just a few weeks ago through Deuteronomy we were talking about how God is talking to the children of Israel. And he's like, let's just be clear. You are not righteous. That's not why this is happening. I'm doing this because of promises I made to your daddies. You are not your daddies. Okay? And it even goes on and says, you have always been a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. It's not a very good attribute to be described with. But going forward too, even in the New Testament, when we looked at the examples of, of Jesus healing earlier in the books of Matthew, you remember when he healed the servant of the Roman centurion and the Roman centurion said, no, Lord, I trust and know and have faith that you can heal this man without ever setting foot in my door. And in fact, I'm not worthy for you to come set foot in my door. And Jesus goes, Wow. I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And he goes on in that, ver- in that section of Matthew chapter 8 and says, I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, 
but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, re- I bring that up for two reasons. Number one, it shows the entrance of Gentiles, harlots, publicans, and a whole lot of other people who are coming to sit down at the table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of God by faith, versus the children of the kingdom, quote-unquote, who have grown up in the lineage of Abraham but have nothing within them that is God-given. They will be cast out into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase is important to grab because we see it in the end of the parable of the wedding feast, talking about the one who didn't have the garment. But if we compare this now to Romans, all right? When you look at sections of Romans from 9, 10, and 11, you're going to have this kind of thing discussed about Gentiles and Jews and about the status of each of them. And you get into a lot of really weird, deep theology. Okay, But what, the reason that I wanted to bring it up is this. It is tying very closely with the events that are going on here in Matthew. These proclamations that Jesus is making about the Jews, well, Paul is writing about them 20 or 30 years later. He's writing about the consequences. He's writing about the status of things, you know, 20, 30 years later when he's sitting, in, he's sitting there writing this letter to the, book, uh, to the church at Rome. So if you look just in Romans chapter 10, and we're going to go a little out of order here, which I'm sorry for type A'ers, but a little out of order. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Okay? For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does the things of the law shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, or speaks in this way. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess... With your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Now, what's the problem with these Jews that Jesus is talking to? Well, they refuse him. They reject him. They are holding fast to what Paul is talking about. You are holding on to this law of righteousness. And there was righteousness, is righteousness in the law. Okay, that's why God gave it. All right. There is a righteous thing about it. It produces righteous actions and bears righteous fruit. Why? Because it comes from God. If you do the things that the law commands, guess what? They are righteous things. But it's the... 
end game that is under consideration. There are those who follow the law in the time of the law through faith to glorify God and have obtained the righteousness that comes with faith. Same righteousness that is attributed to Abraham when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. Okay? You still have the same kind of theme going over and over and over again. Even Paul in Romans, which is getting back too far, but Romans 4, he makes this point. It's not by works, okay? Circumcision hadn't been invented yet. Abraham believed. That's what showed faith. That's what accounted righteousness, not the works that he did, okay? So he clearly defines what works are and what works are not, okay? Works are circumcision, law, those kind of actions. Belief through faith is faith-driven, okay? So he lays it out there. All right, so going forward from that, he then carries that on to say, this is what it looks like still. You have the law of righteousness and you have the law of faith. You have the righteousness that comes through faith, which that's given by God. It can't be obtained anywhere else. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. So the only way you're going to have faith is to be given faith. But he's saying this is where the true salvation is found. Okay? What God gives. Not in the works that are over here in the law. Now, what the problem with these Jews was, they were still operating under this, all right? Now, remember what we've talked about in Deuteronomy. A lot of this law was given to everybody in Israel, right? He didn't discriminate. He didn't say, okay, there are some of you who are children of God, predestined from the foundation of the world. You are the ones that have to follow this law. The rest of you can't. Don't worry about it. Live your lives however you want to. Is that anything that we've gained from the last five books that we've gone through? No. All of Israel was commanded to follow this law. All of Israel was expected to follow this law. And all of Israel was punished if they didn't follow this law. Okay? Now, there's a group or there's a, I guess you could say, in, Paul, in Paul's writings to, um, to Rome here, he makes it out as a majority, okay, will continue to follow the law as the source of their righteousness and will look to self-righteousness Versus God, okay? And that's what he's saying there. There are those who continue to look at themselves as the source of their righteousness. Their authority is within their selves. Their zeal is for their selves. It's all about themselves. It's all about glorifying themselves. It's all about the power they can achieve. It's all about their righteousness. And he's the one, these are the ones that Christ is going, look, y'all are going to be sitting on the sidelines watching everybody else go into the kingdom, whereas you're sitting over here thinking, no, I deserve to go in the kingdom, and I'm telling you, you most certainly will not. Okay? You are looking to yourselves, not God. You're looking through the law and not through faith. So that's what he's explaining here in Rome. He's saying there are a there is a large the reason I say a large majority is because as we go through here to talk about it, he'll say there's a remnant that's not this way. Okay? There's a group within Israel that's not, or I should say that in the reverse. Not all of Israel is of Israel. There are those who are actual Israel, spiritual Israel, elected, God-chosen Israel, okay, that God has born again or will born again. And there are those who have faith within them to live out the righteousness that is of faith, okay? But as he's speaking to a nation of Israel, he's also speaking like Christ is to these Jews 
who think they are entitled to the kingdom because they are Jews. And Christ is saying, no, there's, there's my people. There's my people who I'm dying for. There's my people who God's borning again. There's my people that God through the Holy Spirit has given faith. They're the ones, these harlots and publicans, who you didn't think deserve to be in your kingdom. They're the ones that when God sent his messenger and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guess what they did? They repented. They bore fruit, the fruits of the kingdom. They showed within their hearts what God had done to them. They proved out the things that God had put in them. What did you do? You rejected me. You still reject me. You're rejecting me because you fear the people more than God. So this judgment that he is pronouncing on them, he's, he's laying it bare. He's saying, These, this is the difference. Who's doing the actual will of my father? Okay. Who's doing the actual will of my father? And obviously he's implying that you are not. He's telling the Jews, you are not. These Jewish leaders that he's describing, you are not. Why? Because you, you, didn't, you didn't repent. You didn't believe. You didn't follow. You didn't do what God had commanded you to do. Which one did the will of my father? But what's interesting, and back to the Romans 10 part that is so tying back to what he's describing with the Jews and the Pharisees and the leaders in, in Matthew chapter 21. That, that phrase, and I guess it's probably trying to decipher what it is, has always stumped me, but just this morning kind of came clear in my mind. The phrase in verse 8 and 9 where he says, But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart? That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart... You shall be saved. Okay, I've always kind of... Why are you talking in these terms? What does it mean about who will ascend above and descend below and all those things? But notice the words that are highlighted in that phrase. Mouth, heart. How do you confess? With your mouth. How do you believe? In your heart. He's tying those two together. That's exactly what he echoed up from in the beginning in verse 3. For the beginning of the, or for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone that believes. Where does it come from? Where is its origins? How is it, is it, is it expressed? Okay? So the points that Paul are making here, and what we need to what we always need to make sure we check ourselves on, okay, is that you don't let zeal for self-righteous religiosity confuse you as to true zeal of faith in God, okay? The Jews and the Pharisees and the leaders and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were very, very zealous about what they did. Paul even said, I'm so zealous, I'll kill Christians, okay? Zeal does not equal born again, all right? You can have a zeal for self-righteousness. You can have a zeal of the law. You can have a zeal of works. 
To say, oh man, I'm going to do all these good things because all these good things are going to make me righteous and make God owe me stuff. And man, you can pursue it zealously. In fact, I see a lot of people on TV pursue it zealously all the time. But there's a difference in that. In zealous pursuit of religious things versus zeal in pursuit of God and Christ. And that's, again, that's what we've been going through for two years, okay? That's what we've been describing for two years. Are we just faking it? Are we just looking like it? Or are we living it? Do we have a zeal just for the things, okay? Do we have a zeal just for the stuff, just for the religion, just for the practices, just for these things that then let us go out and go, but look at what I I go to church twice a Sunday and I go every Wednesday and look at the good things that I do and look at how righteous I am. Or is our zeal for Jesus Christ? Because zeal for Jesus Christ, whereas it is expressed in certain actions like that, zeal for Jesus Christ goes way beyond that. Zeal for Jesus Christ lets us stand up in a office at home at wherever, okay, and proclaim a life that is patently different from how the world would have us walk and talk, okay? Religion doesn't do that. Religion doesn't achieve that. And being even zealous in religion doesn't achieve that. Haven't we all heard the adage before about you're going to the bar on Saturday night, but that you're in your church on Sunday? Do we think that's not a reality? I'm not saying that bars are inherently evil. I'm just saying that's the idea, though. You can live however you want to Saturday night as long as you come in church on Sunday morning, man. And if you're zealous about coming in church on Sunday morning, you're good. Don't worry about it. Zeal for Jesus Christ is a life change. Zeal for Jesus Christ charges us and commands us and drives us to love people that rationally we shouldn't love. But number two, nobody in their right mind expects you to love. In fact, a lot of them will tell you, you don't have to love. But that's not what we are with Jesus. Our zeal for Jesus drives me out of a joy to love my neighbor and love my enemy. It drives me out of a joy... To keep the commandments that he has commanded me to do. And we probably don't have time to get into the second parable. But what he's aiming at with both of these. The second parable talking about the vineyard. That we've read. In this same way you've got people who were given something of God. Just like Israel was. Israel for generations had been blessed for the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave them the vineyard. And you can find in Isaiah chapter 5 and and, and on down 1 through 7, you can find him describe almost verbatim the same phrase that Christ is using here. A vineyard owner came in, he planted a vineyard, he put up a wine press, all these things, and he's describing Israel. And then he goes, and then you didn't do what I told you to do. I gave you this vineyard and then you didn't do what I told you to do. And now here's the judgment that's coming because of that. Okay, and he does that in Isaiah, he does it in Hosea, he does it in Micah. And Christ is doing it here. It should sound familiar to them. Hey, guess what? 
You have been given, 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 given and the, the blessings of God for generations. And for generations you have repeatedly turned your back to him and refused to do what he told you to do. Now, again, in Paul's, which, again, we won't get to it this morning, but in Paul's writings, you know, he's making a point. Yes, there is maybe a majority in this case that did that as the nation of Israel. But there was always those people within Israel that were God's people that were not. Okay? That God had preserved, just like he preserved them from bowing down the knee to Baal. So there was plenty of people within there that were doing the will of God. It's just, unfortunately, the nation as a whole was not. And that's why he said, guess what? You're going into captivity. Guess what? You're being kicked out. Guess what? You're being punished. And here he's telling them the same thing. Guess what? The vineyard owner, the husband is going to come back and he is going to miserably destroy you because of what you have done. And I probably should stop there (laughs) before we go any further. But that's what we're, as we continue on through this, okay? This is what we're looking at. These three parables are extremely important for us to grab hold of. Because when you go, especially like when you go to read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you're going to see this kind of setup between Jews and Gentiles that Paul is talking about. And it's a lot of the stuff that Jesus has talked about here. A lot of the punishments and things that Jesus has talked about here. A lot of the examples of what we've talked about of fig trees and bearing fruit and all that, that's going to come back up in Romans. So these are really, really pivotal moments in these histories. So it's important for us to grab them. So may God bless us as we continue through it.